Well, if you guys would want to turn with me in your Bibles to um, the book of 1 Peter, as you may know, we are walking our way through um, this ancient letter these weeks at Grace Fellowship. So today's sermon text will be from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Um, as you're turning there, I want to just make mention of one kind of matter of like Grace Fellowship family business. Um, just wanted to let you know that over the next several weeks, um, Grace Fellowship's team will be meeting, our leadership team will be meeting just to try to think through, you know, what are the late spring into summer Sunday gathering plans, given the various needs we have around our church. Um, some of you guys have begun to ask for that. We have tried to give you guys a little bit of a plan of how we think we're going to continue to do this about two to three months at a time. And we gave you the last one. You know, I think around January, so we're kind of due for another one. So stay tuned to your emails. Our goal, just as a church family, you know, as best we can, we always want to worship together, you know, all together in one service. That's like our goal. Um, but every now and then things have to change. So we're going to kind of keep you posted as the weather changes, as the sunshine changes. As you imagine, it's not really going to work for you guys to sit on this black pavement, say, in August. So um, we love you. That's what you need to know. First Peter, um, chapter two. I'm going to read verses eleven and twelve. Would you listen closely to these God's word? Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And now for today's sermon text. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask in this moment that you would do the thing, Lord, that only you can do. Lord, we want to ask that by the power of your spirit that you would come and be among us in our seats, in our cars, that your spirit would travel to shine light on these words that are in your word. Would your spirit shine light on the words that I've prepared? And would you use all of these words to great effect in our hearts and in our souls, we pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So I want to begin by saying something to you that you might find somewhat unimaginable. Like when I say this, you might immediately not think it's something that you particularly know how to relate to. In other words, it might seem distant from you. It might seem foreign to you. In fact, you might be tempted after I say this to kind of check out and begin making a to-do list for work because what I'm about to say to you is going to feel so irrelevant to your life as you live it in 2021 as a Christian. But listen to this. Catch this. Some of the early Christians, imagine it, some of the early Christians struggled to know how they were supposed to live as God's people underneath the reign of a secular government. In my notes, I say to pause to let you laugh at that. (laughs) But you didn't. (laughs) it's very lonely up here in other words sometimes the bible feels distant from us but man sometimes it feels like it could have been written this morning and early christians living in these cities that we've heard of pontus and galatia and all the cappadocia these places were living under a pagan and secular government and they weren't quite sure how to live as god's people underneath that kind of situation they were confused i mean in our weeks that we've traveled so far we learned that these were god's people and they live with this living hope And this living hope has transformed them into a particular people, a holy people, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession who are intended by God to be a channel for his blessing into all the world. And they begin to ask hard questions like this. If we are God's people, if we are citizens of a different kingdom, then how are we actually supposed to live faithfully underneath the pagan governing authorities? And it's into that sort of confusion that Peter writes these words and speaks. Now, I want to go ahead and warn you in advance that what Peter is going to say, if we look at it and read it and take it in kind of slowly... What Peter's going to say is going to challenge you deeply. And that's because what Peter is going to promote in this passage is almost exactly opposite of the posture that is promoted in our culture with regard to these things. So for example, Peter's words here are going to call into question, and I'm speaking to me here, some of our jaded and cynical opinions about our society. What Peter's going to write here is going to critique at least some of the things that you might be tempted to share on emails or social media. Um, what, What Peter's going to say here is going to call into question, I don't know, speaking ill 
and disrespectfully of government leaders. Peter's words here are going to call into question referring to like the former president as just the, the crazy orange man. Peter's words here are going to call in the question, calling the former president like Amnesia Joe or something like that. And, and I tell you guys this because Peter's words have, have convicted me deeply. I have been guilty of cynical attitudes. I've been guilty of speaking disrespectfully of sin in the very way Peter is describing here. Now, I want to be really clear as to what I think Peter's trying to tell us. So if you zone out for a minute, I want to make sure you're clear. And what Peter is saying here is that the identity we have in Jesus, okay, this gospel that has been proclaimed and announced that has moved us into a new status as God's people, that it actually spills beyond and has something to do with how we relate to sort of the socio-political realities of our lives. In other words, the gospel of Jesus is not just a private thing for private spirituality, but it spills beyond in the ways we think about our role in society as God's people. That's what Peter's trying to say. And another thing Peter's trying to say, if you want some degree of clarity is that Christ has made a better way for us to be engaged in our world. So the gospel has something to do, much to do with our opinions of things like politics. But Christ has made a better way for us to be engaged. That's the main kind of emphasis that we will look at tonight. I want to remind you as we look at this text, again, something I've already said, and that's that Peter actually desires for his readers to have influence in the culture in which they live. Peter desires for the people to be shapers of culture. He desires for his readers to have a degree of impact in the world. It's just that the impact that he imagines us having is just not the things that we would have expected. I went ahead and read it, but he began last week by telling us that a way we can have an impact in the culture in which we live is by distancing ourselves from sinful desires. It's a critical way we have impact in our world by distancing ourselves from fleshly sinful desires. Now he says a second way that we can have impact as God's people in our world is by being subject to human government. And again, it just doesn't shape up the way that we would have thought. Sometimes when the words of the Bible challenge me deeply, I, I do what I call like an honest rewrite. So I rewrite the words of scripture according to how I would have written it, okay? This is not a good practice, okay? But this is what I do. So for example, if it were me, Here's what I would have written. I would have said something like this. Listen, the government is stupid and inept and corrupt. The president, the Congress, the governor, all of them. 
So, so here's what you do. Share mean things about them on social media. Then people will really know how dumb they are. You do you, belittle everyone, love those who think like you fear the other side and mock the president. See, that's what I would have said. What Peter says is be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or governors. For this is the will of God, but thy doing good like this, you'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. It's totally opposite of what we would have thought. Let's just talk about this one phrase at a time. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors sent by him. So this idea of being subject means to come underneath the authority of. So as God's people come underneath the authority of human government. Why? Peter tells us in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. So in other words, Peter imagines us as God's people being able to look at, say, a city councilman or the mayor of our community or a governor, if we can ever meet them or the president or whatever, Peter imagines us being able to look a government official in the eye and saying to them, I'm going to come underneath your authority because I believe you have been sent by God for a season to rule here. And I'm actually going to do that for God's sake because he's asked me to. Peter's trying to paint a picture of human government really only exists because of God's authority over said government. He's trying to create a posture among God's people of being submissive to God's authority. You're not being submissive to a political party. You're not being submissive to a certain set of political views. You're actually being subject to human government as a way to obey our Lord. Look at this next phrase in verse 14. Or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He says, be subject to the emperor way off in Rome and even be subject to the governors that he has sent into your communities. And here's why. God has actually given human government for a particular purpose, according to this text. And the purpose, according to this text, is that they would punish those who do evil. The way I've heard it described is God envisions human government acting as kind of like a, a dam that, that dams up the evil of the human heart. It kind of dams it up. It, it tries to stop it. to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If you're ever wondering what God's idea of human government is, it's, it's right there, that they would punish those who do evil 
and that they would praise those who do good. Peter's saying, be subject to human government because that is why they were sent by God, which obviously raises an in, a tension inside our hearts, doesn't it? And, and the tension goes like this, but what if the government that we are subject to doesn't do those two things? What if the government that we're subject to is not stopping evil? What if they're promoting it? What if the government that we're subject to is not praising those who do good? Maybe they're like making life harder on them. Then what? And Christians in all times and all places have asked that question and there's no easy answer to it. I think at least one answer that the Bible would provide to that is that you and I can rest assured that if God gives power and authority to governmental leaders and they abuse that power and authority to do wrong, then you can rest assured that God will give them judgment for that. You can leave that to him. I think the New Testament in particular would, would also teach. It does not say that we just acquiesce to evil government. I don't think the New Testament would call us to that. It calls us to be a people of righteousness and justice. But I think what the scriptures would teach us is if we take on this posture of submission, of humility, of the things that this text teaches of honoring, then would actually give us the moral authority to make the stands we need to make when appropriate. Does that make sense? So let me see if I can illustrate it like this. In our own city, there was a pastor of a church called Bethel Baptist Church in the 1950s and 60s, and his name was Fred Shuttlesworth. Fred Shuttlesworth was a hot-headed, hot-tempered, straight-talking kind of man. Some say that he may have been an eight on the Enneagram. Okay? But in obedience to this text, he decided to take on a posture of submission. He decided to take on a posture of honoring a corrupt government. And as a result, it gave him the moral authority to take a stand for righteousness when the time was right. And Shuttlesworth and others in our own city wrote about these things, that sometimes our belligerent attitudes need to take a back seat to obedience to God. Another way I could hope to illustrate this for you is an illustration that comes from Christians in another part of the world. What I've learned is that Christians in other parts of the world understand what it looks like to relate to government better than often, than, you know, better than we do so many times. So Mandy and I have these friends that, that run a, um, a mission in Haiti. And the Haitian government is notoriously corrupt. The Haitian government is notoriously promoters of injustice. And our friends, Henry and Gladys, take no hope in the government, but they do their very best to come alongside in submission to the government. 
in order that they can have the opportunity to advance Jesus's kingdom and to not be seen as belligerent people, but being seen as generally good people so they could be given the opportunity to stand for what's right when the time comes. And this does not mean their life gets any easier. It does not mean the government always treats them right. In fact, at this very moment, the government is trying to take away land that they own, that they've been owners of for 40 years. It doesn't make anything easier, but the posture that Peter promotes here gives them the kind of moral authority to be able to make those kind of stands. All that was somewhat of a side note. (laughs) Let's look at this next phrase. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You know, as Christian people, we always want to know the will of God, don't we? I mean, 90% of the pastoral conversations I have at Grace Fellowship have something to do with finding God's will. And what we normally mean by that is what job I'm going to have next year. But there are two places in the New Testament where the will of God is spelled out for us plainly. And this is one of them. It is the will of God that we would do good. In this case, in our society, specifically with regard to our relationship with governing authorities. And then in doing so, we would be putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter's promoting this idea that that his, his readers, his hearers go out of their way to do good to governing authorities. And we've got to understand the kind of governing authorities that we're actually talking about here. I mean, depending on when you date this letter, he's talking about a governing authority named Nero, a Roman emperor who will just in a few years institute massive persecution against Christians. He's not talking about submitting to these good people. And Christians in this day were often falsely accused of being insurrectionists. See, they were known to be people who had a different king and a different Lord. And they were often falsely accused of of kind of secretly meeting in these secret meetings and calling each other brothers and sisters and eating these ceremonial meals as a way to undermine the secular government. They were accused of that all of the time. And what Peter's saying is that when you take a posture of humility, when you seek to do good, it will actually shut those people up up. They won't have grounds to accuse you. Again, it won't be easy. In the paragraphs that come, he's going to talk about suffering unjustly. It won't be easy. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. You know, it's an age-old problem of God's people that we hear this message that we're free in Christ and we think that is license for us to then do whatever we want to do with whatever sort of sinful attitude we wish to do it. 
Peter is saying something the New Testament says again and again and again and again. And that's that when you become free in Christ, you've really just traded masters. So rather than being a slave to sin and the power of darkness, you now have the freedom of living as a servant of God, the freedom of living as a servant of God. You and I will never know any freedom as free as living as a servant of God. He's saying, don't use freedom as an opportunity to cover up evil. Apparently, early Christians would do that. They would do evil things and say, we are free in Christ. Peter critiques that way of thinking. Because we're free in Christ, we're now free to serve God by doing good for those in our society, in our culture, in our communities. And then finally, in verse 17, It's just a string of imperative commands. Did you hear them? Listen again. Verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What does this mean? Verse 17. Honor everyone. See, in the scriptures, this kind of revolutionary idea is taught. From Genesis to Revelation, this idea that every single human person is a person made in the precious image of God. That every single person that you encounter and that you meet is a sacred wonder. And as a human being who's made in the image of God, you are called to treat them with honor and respect to be in awe in their very presence. What is this idea of loving the brotherhood? What Peter's saying here is love those who are in Christian community with you. And most particularly in the New Testament, that has to do with sharing the things you have with them. This idea of fearing God, what does Peter mean? It primarily means in the Bible to be more concerned about God and his relationship with you, then you're concerned or fearful about any other thing in your life. This idea of honoring the emperor, I think in the New Testament sense, this means we pray for, we try to speak respectfully about, we're sober-minded in our language and in our tone with regard to the authorities God has placed over us. Do you see the way Peter is calling for something so different than what you and I would naturally take up on our own? I know as I thought about these words this week, I started to feel a little, I don't know, not hopeful. Because I get a little overwhelmed when I look at the news and I get a little overwhelmed by thinking of the authorities that God has placed over us. Get overwhelmed for all sorts of reasons. And you might be like me today, and you know that you fall short of the vision presented in this passage, and you might want to look somewhere for hope. So I want to end this afternoon before we celebrate at this table of talking about where hope is to be found. I hope it doesn't surprise you when I tell you 
that hope, the hope to be faithful to a text like this is found squarely and firmly in Jesus. I was thinking about this calling to live with this kind of humble but still truth-telling, but an honoring and doing good toward posture in our culture. I was thinking about this call and I started to realize that Jesus perfectly embodies the vision here that Peter presents, doesn't he? And when I'm going to explain to you the way that Jesus embodies this posture, I want you to know, I'm, I'm saying more than he is an example for us to follow, though that is true. It's also that in Christ, we have union. We have union with Jesus himself in his posture, in his obedience. The way he steps up to this call, because we have him, gets to be ours for the living so let me give you a couple of examples of this. Jesus in his ministry. He just, he just purposefully keeps his eye on the ball. He, he's always being asked to be getting into disputes. Sometimes you could understand these disputes as political disputes, but he just keeps moving forward, pursuing the mission that his father had given Think of a time when he feeds the 5,000 and a huge crowd rushes around him and seeks to make him king. But he purposely walks away from political power in order that he can be faithful to his calling. See, this is something like what Peter's trying to encourage his hearers. Just like Jesus purposely didn't play the game of political power, you don't need to either. What about Jesus, who's found in the upper room with his disciples, washing their stinking feet? Jesus, who deserves all honor, taking the lowest place as a servant in order to do good. What about Jesus, right before he goes to the cross? And he goes to the cross to forgive people like you and me who can have sinful attitudes and disrespectful language. See, in his trial scenes, as he interacts with government leaders, he's patient, he's respectful, he tells the truth, but he takes up this posture. See, in even these things, Jesus, I think, presents us a new and better path. And according to this text, if in the power of God's spirit, if we take up this path, that we can actually be God's people, we can actually be faithful to the calling we have. Now, being faithful to this calling, to be a particular people, especially underneath a pagan or secular government, it won't be easy the path will be marked by suffering just like Jesus has walked before us. But he does promise to give us the strength that we need. And these are the truths tonight, of course, that bring us to this table. So when we come to Holy Communion, we're reminded of the objective things that our Lord Jesus has done for us in real time, in real space. Jesus himself went to the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed in order to win you 
in order to redeem you, in order to make you new, to make new ways of being in this world possible. And Jesus also, when we celebrate communion, we're reminded that the strength that we need to be faithful followers of Christ, we gain that strength from Jesus himself, just like food nourishes our body. You and I are nourished. We're nourished by Jesus himself. We're reminded of that when we gather. Scriptures also teach us that one day there is a future reality that's coming where God's rule and reign will have been established once and for all and you and I won't know a thing anymore like a corrupt, unjust government. That will be a thing of the past because the knowledge of our God, we're told, will fill the earth just like the waters cover the sea. When we come to this table, we're reminded that the very things that we need to be faithful to this call are things that Jesus himself has provided to us. Um, Let's pray and let's ask the Lord to renew and refresh our hearts. Lord, we do not come to this table because we are embodiments of the call, the hard call that you've given us today in your word. Lord, our posture is often prideful, cynical, bitter, Lord, we don't come because of our righteousness. Lord, we become because you are the same God whose very character it is to have mercy on sinners like us, to make us new, or to give us a new way and a new path for being your people in this world. So we ask that in this time, you would strengthen us, nourish us. Lord, kindle our hearts, hope in you, we pray. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.